Our scripture focus today is found in 1 Samuel chapter 11. Nahash the Ammonite came up and laid siege to Jabesh Gilead. All the men of Jabesh said to him, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. Nahash the Ammonite replied, I'll make one with you on this one condition, that I gouge out everyone's right eye and humiliate all Israel. Don't do anything to us for seven days, the elders of Jabesh said to him, and let us send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. If no one saves us, we will surrender to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah, Saul's hometown, and told the terms to the people, all wept aloud. Just then, Saul was coming in from the field behind his oxen. What's the matter with the people? Why are they weeping? Saul inquired. And they repeated to him the words of the men from Jabesh. When Saul heard these words, the Spirit of God suddenly came powerfully on him, and his anger burned furiously. He took a team of oxen, cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by messengers who said, This is what will be done to the ox of anyone who doesn't march behind Saul and Samuel. As a result, the terror of the Lord fell on the people, and they went out united. Saul counted them at Bezek. There were 300,000 Israelites and 30,000 men from Judah. He told the messengers who had come, Tell this to the men of Jabesh Gilead. Deliverance will be yours tomorrow by the time the sun is hot. So the messengers told the men of Jabesh, and they rejoiced. Then the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Tomorrow we will come out, and you can do whatever you want to us. The next day Saul organized the troops into three divisions. During the morning watch... They invaded the Ammonite camp and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. There were survivors, but they were so scattered that no two of them were left together. Afterward, the people said to Samuel, Who said that Saul should not reign over us? Give us those men so we can kill them. But Saul ordered, No one will be executed this day, for today the Lord has provided deliverance in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let's go to Gilgal so we can renew the kingship there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there in the Lord's presence they made Saul king. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings in the Lord's presence, and Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good? My name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here, and I get to uh, lead us in our time of studying the scriptures this morning. And today, as we've, been, as we've been told and as we know, today is Palm Sunday. It is Palm Sunday, and I am so, so looking forward to Easter this year. I remember last year, last year was our first Easter Sunday of experiencing a, a time where the church is together in spirit, but watching through video, watching through, through the um, live stream recording. And I'm just so thankful 
that we have these different options that we can uh, rejoice and worship together in this year. So I'm, my heart is just really filled with gratitude when I think about this Easter Sunday and I think about Christ being risen and us getting to celebrate together. But today is Palm Sunday. This is the Sunday we look back at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem when he rode in on the donkey and he fulfilled all of the, the prophets' statements about this coming Messiah. And while Palm Sunday it points to this everlasting deliverance that we get to experience in Christ, together we get to see in the Old Testament, we are seeing story after story of these very vivid, detailed, momentary deliverances. These momentary deliverances that will ultimately point to an everlasting deliverance that we find in Christ. And this message this morning, this chapter, is filled with this vivid imagery of momentary deliverance for Israel. And one that we, by looking through it, by digging into it and seeing the different elements of it, we find ourselves in too. Because in this chapter, I, I hope and I pray that we all find the ways that we are like the Israelites. The ways that when confronted with opposition by the enemy, we find ourselves tending to move to neglect. Sometimes we move to cowardice. And how God calls us and equips us to be even grander and bigger than that. Also, I I pray that we see that Saul's reaction and these moments of nonchalance that he kind of fosters and has in in this story, through the Spirit, we see that we tend to do that too. See, that we tend to sometimes have that same kind of moment of nonchalance and looking at the Lord's work in our lives and yet Don't do anything about it. But I think in these moments when we read this chapter, I'm excited to see how we realize that it is not actually us at all that's doing the work, but it's the Holy Spirit. And it's the Spirit's work in and through us to equip us, to unite us, and to ultimately point us to this everlasting deliverance. So this is what I'm hoping that we see in this. So would you pray with me? while we begin. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask for your grace and your mercy and your love to be poured out on us as we worship your son Jesus this morning. And as we look to Saul's anointing as king, to this, this chapter, this blip of history, this moment in time I pray that we would see it as a foretaste of the everlasting deliverance we find in your son, Jesus, and all that he has done for us. I pray, God, that you would be with us, that you would lead us and guide us. In Christ's name, amen. So my least favorite part of movies, my least favorite part of movies is the introductions of villains. Don't you, don't you just get irritated? Like, I get really irritated when I hear about when the villain is introduced into, into movies. 
And it's not just because, if, you're, if you know me, you know that I really don't like scary movies. Because I spook easy. I spook easy. But I don't like villains because they just, they bother me. And they bother me because they always have the same type of built tension that I find in every single movie. And I have yet to come across a, a villain introduction that does not have these same characteristics that are leading with it, right? For one, there's always some catastrophic attempt to take over the world, right? Yes, thank you. Two, they always try to bring this unnecessary tension into the movie. Everything's fine. And then they come in and they want to just bring in their own power and everything right, builds tension, right? Three, they're always trying to scare me. I don't like being scared. I don't need that in my life. Villains always do this in four. Villains are just kind of annoyingly there, and their whole purpose is to shake the, shake the main characters, the protagonist, away from what they know and the security that they know to feeling kind of this sense of helplessness, right? That they can't necessarily do it on their own. Now, I do know that there are different types of villains for different types of stories. And in this story, we do not have a, we do not have like a Joker from Batman. We don't have that kind of villain who's just kind of set on bringing chaos. We also don't even have a Sauron from Lord of the Rings that's trying to bring like total world destruction and chaos and bring the darkness into everything. He's not even that. We have like a, a Biff Tannen from Back to the Future. Just a lame-o, you know? Just a lame guy. He's, he's a bully. Nahash is a bully. And this is what we're, this is what we're introduced to. We're introduced to this guy who's this leader of this Ananite people. And what we know out in, in history books, what we know in history books about Nahash is this one thing is that he had a really dark, weird thing about how he wouldn't necessarily take over a nation. All he would do is poke out the right eyeball of the people. And you're like, what? How would you do that? This is why. Because he wants to leave. Wait a minute. Is it still there? Thank you. I'm be honest, guys. I think you've noticed that this has been distracting me. All right. Can you see me? Okay. If it falls off again, just help me <laughs> by telling me that it fell off my shoulder. Anyway, Nahash, this Ananite leader, he is coming on and he's set on destruction. He's just a type of bully the type of bully that we see that aren't necessarily built, bent on total destruction, but instead is built on humiliation control and trying to seek the absence and take away people's courage. This is the type of person that wants to do that. And this is the type of enemy that wants to do that. He wants the Israelites to feel like they have no hope for a savior to deliver them. And here's the trouble. Here's the trouble is that Israel falls for it. So we're brought into a story that's already been filled with moments of mess and moments of mercy to finding Israel back in the same type of 
posture that they've been in before. It's one that Samuel would call on in chapter 10, verse 19. You have rejected your God who saves you from all your troubles and afflictions. Now we find Israel in the same place as they've been in before, which is a place of looking out and saying, who can save us? Who can save us? Our courage has left us because of this threat that's come before us, this enemy that's come here, who can save us? Verse 3, let us send messengers through all out the territory of Israel. And if no one saves us, we will surrender to you. Just like that. Just like that, Israel so quickly forgets their hope. And in this first sense, I think we see how easily, how easily we too can forget the promises that the scriptures give us. Because while we have, we too, in Christ Jesus, through the Spirit, have been equipped for every spiritual battle, our disposition is to fight alone. Our disposition is to call out who can be here to, to save us. Our disposition is to grab our fists and hold our fists tightly and say, I am in this by myself. And we may not think that, but sometimes we end up doing that. And that's the difficulty of, of this moment of, of feeling, of saying what we think, but not doing the actions that we think. We say, I want this, they say, I, I have this, but we, our actions do the exact opposite. And in this moment, Israel is doing that very thing. But friends, we do have a very real enemy. And though I, I mean, I bring up villains from, from movies and I bring up how they do these things, we have a very real enemy. We have an enemy whose purposes are the same. An enemy's purposes who are to control, to weaken, and just like what Israel's faced with, to humiliate us and to keep us cowardly, to ask who can help us. And I think we fall for it far more than we care to admit. I love C.S. Lewis's descriptions of, of this perspective, um, this demon's perspective, actually, and this human tendency through the screw tape letters. In this, in this book, he writes about these letters from a demon to another demon instructing on how to um, best kind of win this battle over this kind of human subject. But in it, it's filled with this wisdom, and we can see it here. And what he says is he says this. He says, we, that's the, the demon, want cattle who can finally become food. But he, who is God, wants servants who finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. Our war aim is a world in which our father below has drawn all other beings to himself. The enemy, God, wants a world full of beings united to him, but still distinct. There's a very real battle 
there's a very real tension and there's a very real threat to our faith that seeks control, that seeks to weaken us by having us forget the good grace and the equipping that God has given us, but mostly it's to make us feel cowardice and make us feel like we are alone. So what do we need to do to fight the enemy's schemes? What do we do? Do we clench our fists and do we say, do we act like we're alone? Do we try to fight by ourselves? No. We find ourselves in the same position that Israel is in, which is this. We too need the Holy Spirit to remind us of the reality, of the truth, of who God is and equip us. Our passage this morning leads us in that very moment because we see in verses 4 and 6, 4 through 6, we see how God equips Saul and the Israelites to confront this threat. So let's read together, let's read verses 4. When the messengers came to Gibeah, Saul's hometown, and told the terms of the people, all wept aloud. Just then Saul was coming in from the field behind his oxen. What's the matter with these people? Why are they weeping? Saul inquired. And then they repeated to him the words of the men from Jabesh. When Saul heard these words, the Spirit of God suddenly came powerfully on him, and his anger burned furiously. They had gone out in search of a deliverer. They had gone out to find out who can help them. And they're crying all throughout Israel. And what we see is this vivid picture of these messengers going from town to town, from city to city in all of Israel, crying out, who will save us? Who will help us? We also see Saul coming in from farming to discover these town people in a panic. But I want you guys to draw, I want us to kind of focus in here because what we see in verses 5 and then what we see in verses 6 are two completely different Sauls. Two completely different Sauls. Verse 5, there's this nonchalant, is the nonchalant Saul that we've come to know. Now, the, the thing about it is that there's nothing wrong with farming. There's nothing wrong with doing the work that he was doing. But there's an intention here that the author wants to, wants to help us understand. This is the first question. If you've been reading this with, a, if, with us, if you've been studying 1 Samuel with us, when has Saul ever really been there on his own merit? He has never been at the place at the right time, only at the place at the right time if God brings him there. He's never really there on his own. And so we find in this moment Saul, the very same kind of thing. There's a panic, there's an emergency, there's this war that's about to kind of happen, there's people's eyes are about to get poked out, and what's Saul doing? He's farming. What's Saul doing? Oh, nothing. Shoot the breeze. Right? The author wants to detach him to show how he is doing this, why he's out there. Or draw attention to that, I'm sorry. To draw attention to Saul. It's this reflection of chapter 10, verse 16, which I hope you guys, I don't know if you remember, you can look back and you can see this is the moment when 
Saul was just a, a prophesying. The Spirit came on Saul and he's prophesying to all of the people. And then what happens? His uncle tells him, what were you doing? What did Samuel say to you? And he said that, not to worry about the donkeys because the donkeys were found. This nonchalance, this kind of nothing that happens that Saul finds, we, we keep seeing him in. But this is the truth of the matter. The truth of the matter is that Saul, who has been set apart for far more, is being what Paul would later, be, would later describe as merely human. Saul is being a mere human in this moment. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3 says, Because you are still worldly, for since there is envy and strife among you, are you not worldly and behaving like mere humans? He's talking to a church that has been given the grace of God and has been equipped by the Holy Spirit, and yet, in their anointing, in the, all of the work and the mission that they're doing, just kind of approach things nonchalantly. Just kind of take things as is, not really thinking about what it is that they're truly called to, the equipping that they truly have in Christ Jesus. And we see this back, this reflection of a, of a mere human. And friends, this is, an, again, this is another moment where I feel like I succumb to this all the time. I mean, I am quick to ride off my calling as God's co-worker for the sake of comfort and doing just kind of what I know, right? I just kind of get in this rhythm, and I want to ask, is this you? Have we grown too comfortable right now? Last year, last year, we were all hit with such new and unknown and unfamiliar emergencies that, we've had, that we had to react and respond very quickly, and we had to band together to kind of figure out how we were going to do this whole pandemic. But the question is now, are you growing too comfortable? Are you growing too comfortable? Has a once urgent sense of the pandemic where we're constantly looking for God's evidences of grace, have we now been set into a place of comfortability and nonchalance where we're not really as concerned anymore about what God is doing in us and through us? Are we growing too comfortable? Has our previous excitement, what just stirred our hearts, has it now been dampened and lost by just the, the momentary battles that we face? Because, friends, I will tell you to keep your eyes open. Keep your eyes open on the enemy's schemes. There is one thing that he wants to do is to make you feel alone. He wants to make you feel alone. And doing so, he wants to feel like 
any step forward, any act of any act of ministry, of feeling God's work in your life and communicating that to others, whether it be virtually, whether it be walking outside with someone, sharing your heart again. He wants you to feel like that's going to be a moment where you're going to get embarrassed. That's going to be a moment that you really don't want because you might, you might be embarrassed and humiliated from it. So keep quiet. Just keep doing your thing. Do you see, you see how the enemy can so skew the reality of what we have been given? But what happens to Saul? Because there's hope in this. Verse 6. If verse 5 shows us the same old Saul that we know, verse 6 shows us a whole new Saul. The Spirit of God coming powerfully on him. Now, what does this mean? I don't know if you've seen this before, if you've seen this passage before, but if you'll remember in Judges, there are three, three other moments when we have the same kind of description of the Spirit fills someone. The Spirit rushes on someone. And now they're acting in a new way. The Spirit of God coming powerfully on Saul is the same Spirit-filled equipping that we see in the few in the Old Testament. But this is the good news. This is what I love, is that it's multiplied in the New Testament. Because this is the same spirit that the church has been given. Verse 6. Verse 6 is a foretaste of the power that Christ gives his church for the sake of the ministry. What happened to a select few happens to all of those in Christ now. I think it's easy I don't know about you, but sometimes I can read Bible verses and I can feel a very, a very clear sense of detachment in context. I don't know if you guys feel that. But I read this and I'm like, well, I don't really have anyone that's, trying to, that's actively telling me that they're going to poke out my right eye. I don't really have that right now. I don't have cows and I don't have sheep. I would like a goat, but I don't have one. And I, kind of conf- and I kind of approach the passage in a sense of detachment. And I look at it, and I say, their problems are not necessarily my problems. But is that true? It's not. It's not true. It's not true because in this, I see that the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is given to Saul in this moment to lead him and equip him to do abundantly more than he could ever imagine is also in me. You guys feel that? That is incredible. That is an incredible detail that I cannot read this and detach myself from the story that God has swept me into because he has brought me into a story. A story that connects me with everyone I may not have cows, and I may not have goats, and I may not have an enemy like this, but I do have an enemy with the same purposes. But I have 
The same God who equips me for every battle, for every work that he has given. Do you guys feel that? Amen? You too have been equipped with the same spirit to do abundantly more than you can imagine right now because God has swept you into a story. And each evidence of grace is going to further give you this moment, this momentary detail of just how beautiful and wonderful God is, is moving in and through your life. Despite our fallen condition, despite our failing ambitions, despite our mere humanity, Christ equips us with his spirit and calls us his own to do abundantly more than we could ever imagine. 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, listen to this. It says, his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these he has given us very great and precious promises so that through him you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. He has given us everything we need. God will see to it that we are equipped for every good work so that in every moment of panic, in every moment of emergency, we know that we will never be shaken in the hope that is within us. We know that we can approach any moment with the confidence that we have in Christ because God is going to lead us in it and through it. But God doesn't just equip us. He doesn't just equip us. He unites us as well. He is a king who equips and he is a king who unites. Verse 7. Saul took a team of oxen, cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by messengers who said, this is what will be done to the ox of anyone who doesn't march behind Saul and Samuel. As a result, the terror of the Lord fell on people and they went out united. Okay, so this is a bit dramatic. So, so you're like, what does that mean? It's not quite what I had in mind when it came to unity, but let's see what it says. So what does it mean for Saul to cut up a bunch of oxen and then send them out through all of Israel, and say, join me or else. This is what it's pointing to. There's a horrible story in the book of Judges. There's a horrible story in the book of Judges. At the later end of the chapter of a woman who was assaulted and who, who died, and then her body was dismembered and sent out to the various different tribes of Israel. And in this story, what it encapsulates is that, that Israel had come to a place of no sorrow, of no repentance, and ultimately, 
set forth this complete division between the Benjaminites and all of the... There it is. Sorry about that. And all of the other tribes of Israel. And what we can find in Judges 20, it says, Then all the people stood united and said, None of us will go into his tent or return to his house. Now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will attack it by lot. So all the men of Israel gathered united against the city. So what do we see? What do we see? We see back in Judges, in the time of Judges, we see Gibeah being a place where there is no sorrow, where there is no repentance, and where evil acts, where just horrible, horrible acts are done that cause complete division of a society. This is in Gibeah. We see an absence of grace. We're left with the understanding that nothing good, nothing good will come out of Gibeah. Okay, that's what we want to to know. Nothing good's going to come out of there. That is, until now, the Holy Spirit came. The Holy Spirit came and God brings light out of darkness. That is the difference that Jesus, that the Spirit makes. Because God alone unifies and equips his people and turns a place of absence of his grace into the outpouring of his grace as a source of salvation and deliverance. Why does he do that? Because Saul is in Gibeah. And this ox that he's just taken apart and sent to the various tribes of Israel is to say, we are no longer going to be in division anymore. We are no longer going to live a life of evil and wickedness. We are going to be united together. So come back. Come back. That is what this representation is. Is a place in Gibeah where once was complete absence of grace is now the very place where the Holy Spirit is bringing all of Israel back to themselves. God is bringing his people back together in unity after years of division. That is a message of hope that we need right now because I look at that passage and I see just the the threat and the very real presence of division that we have in our churches right now. How many churches have we seen today in places that have been absent of grace when they've meant to foster an abundance of it? A place where the Holy Spirit is said to be there, but is very, very absent. The actions and the things that happen do not bring sorrow and do not bring repentance but bring corruption and bring division. And we ask ourselves, what is happening? Is there any hope? Is there any hope at all? 1 Corinthians helps us 
helps us in our posture of what we should have when we approach that kind of question, when we approach that kind of division that we see in our churches today. 1 Corinthians 1.10, it says, after, after Paul has just addressed the church of Corinth by telling them God is faithful, by telling them that we are called into fellowship with Jesus, by telling, sharing in the promises, he's saying, don't cause division. Don't cause divisions. 1 Corinthians 1.10 says, Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there is no division, divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. There are valid reasons that a church may need to approach these dividing reasons that they're, that they're feeling this way. But in most cases, it's not big issues, but it's the petty, small bickerings of discontentment that fester division and harbor bitterness. And in our current season, most of the arguments that we find in churches today are not theological, but circumstantial. Most of the ones that we're finding, that we're experiencing today, we need the Holy Spirit to remind us of the love and the unity that we have together so that when we do see, when we see marks of unrepentance, when we see corruption, when we see an absence of grace, we are able to understand how we can better combat it together. As a church, as a church together, that we do not seek things alone, but we seek things through the unity of the Holy Spirit. How we plead with one another, we are not going to be. We are not going to live in division. We are not going to let petty arguments and let all of these things fester into, into more than they need to be causing complete division. So how do we avoid it? How do we avoid it? Through our active participation in the Spirit's work in and through us. By coming to the table as ambassadors of Christ and toasting to the evidences of grace that we see in each other. These are two values of our church, is the table and the toast, and they're meant to reflect the unity that we have. It's also by praying together and praying that God would make our gatherings this, what's happening right now, an outpouring of fellowship and an outpouring of grace. Because, friends, we do need to recognize that we do have an enemy. And the enemy wants this room to be filled with strangers instead of brothers and sisters. Our enemy wants this room to be filled with strangers instead of brothers and sisters, what we truly are.
we are made for more. God alone unifies. He is the one who brings us together. He's the one who helps us see clearly, who helps us put on lenses of grace to where we can look out, where we can see the disunity in churches and we can call, we can call brothers and sisters to, to live in the grace that he has gifted us with. God equips his people, bringing light out of darkness. But let's continue on. Let's see how this story develops. In verses 8 through 9, we see God, Israel's true king, delivering his people from their enemy. So we see verse 8. Saul counted them at Bezek. There were 300,000 Israelites and 30,000 men from Judah. He told the messengers who had come, tell this to the men of Jabesh Gilead. Deliverance will be yours tomorrow by the time the sun is hot. So the messengers told the men of Jabesh and they all rejoiced. Salvation is coming. Saul, through the direction of the Spirit, he organizes this army of over 300 men, which, by the way, might be a lot more than we see in this. We have some historical documents that argue that it was closer to 700,000 men. But they make this strategy under Saul's leadership to defeat the Ammonites. And this new hope, it's this new hope that has filled their sails because they now experience help on the way. Now, I mentioned to you earlier what irritates me most in movies, what I dislike most in movies. But what I love most in movies is that one moment when the, when the whole army is coming over the hillside, right? And everyone's about to be saved. I love those moments of deliverance. Those are my favorite moments of deliverance. And that can be told any which way. That can be like one army or it can be an army of like of a thousand. That moment of deliverance is always my favorite. So since we have this big moment, we also have this internal kind of strategy that's about to take place. So the Israelites, they go up to Nahash and they communicate some truth with a whole lot of strategy in it, right? They tell Nahash in verse 10, tomorrow we will come out and you will do whatever you want to us, right? What they didn't say is that they have an entire army back behind us and we're going to destroy you, but we'll come out tomorrow. Now, what was the purpose of that? The purpose was their strategy so that the, so that the Ammonites did exactly what they did. They fell asleep. They partied. They rejoiced. They said, we don't have to fight tonight. We don't have to exert any of our energy tomorrow. We don't have to stand our guard because the Israelites are lame. And they've given themselves over. They've surrendered to us. They have no king. They have no hope. And they would rather succumb to humiliation. They would rather succumb to humiliation than fight. They are not a threat at all, but they were wrong. Because here we see a completely different Saul leading a completely different Israel. 
we see a Holy Spirit-filled Saul leading a first-time united Israel. Other translations say that when they came together, they came united, but some say, some of the passages describe Israel fighting as one man. This is as one man. This is a, a sense of an army being fully united together. The victory that they have, sorry about that, the victory that they have is not from their own strength, but in the strength of their God who has sent them. What we see in this and the power of this is that we see their cowardice has now melted away through the strength of the Spirit to become confidence. Their division is now melted away to become unity. But I don't know if you've noticed this yet, but I have specifically not given Saul or any of the Israelites any credit for any of their victory. I haven't said anything about any of this passage really being an action for them. Because in this passage, as we're looking at this, Saul, though chosen as a king and though given the leadership to be the king, to be a king, he isn't the king. Because none of this would have happened without God. Had God not held on to his promises of a people who had already rejected him, who had already sought another king that looked just like everyone else. And now they're faced with a king that they see and they're terrified of. But God has not left them alone and God has not forgotten his promises. None of this would have happened without God's direction and help. One commentator writes, salvation came not because Israel had a king, but because the king had Yahweh's spirit. It is not the institution of kingship, but the power of the spirit that brings deliverance. This is simply Christ's Old Testament way of saying, without me, you can do nothing. That's John 15. This is what we see, what we call a momentary deliverance. God's merciful acts of salvation in a momentary victory. And what does it lead to? It leads to a united people, an equipped people rejoicing in the king. Rejoicing in Yahweh. And they renew their vow and they re-recognize who it was that saved them all along. Some people didn't quite get it because they're like, who is the Saul? Who is, who's the people who, who rejected Saul? We're going to kill them. And Saul says, no, 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 no. Back, wait, just stop. Everybody stop. We're all reunited, remember? No one's going to die today. No one is going to die today. Because for today, the Lord provided deliverance in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, this is verse 14, Come, let's go to Gilgal where we can renew the kingship there. What are they renewing? What are they renewing? They're renewing 
They're renewing the proper kingship that should have been established that looks like the passages that the instructions found in Deuteronomy, where a king may be appointed, but that king is always going to be under the authority of God, of Yahweh. This is the first time that through God teaching Israel, they now recognize this is how kingship should properly properly work in God's nation, that God is ultimately the king who saves, is ultimately the king who rejoices, and is ultimately always the king who delivers his people. Our story ends with Israel renewing the kingship. So so you see this reappointing. Saul is officially appointed the king of Israel under the presence of God. Do you remember the last time it it wasn't like that? Israel is no longer acting outside of the Lord's jurisdiction, but now within it. But again, friends, we find that though this is one momentary battle and the story is potentially ended in this moment, it is not the end of the final battle. Because we don't worship a God who merely fights momentary battles, but we worship an everlasting God whose momentary victories, like we find are foretastes into the victory Christ won for us. This momentary deliverance of God gives Israel a king, of of God giving Israel a king ultimately points to the everlasting deliverance that God would send when he sent his son Jesus to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey to die. That is the everlasting deliverance that we see, and it brings us to today, to Palm Sunday, when we read that Jake read for us earlier in John 12. The next day when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. And they kept shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. Your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Do not be afraid. Your king is coming. The king who turns our cowardice into courage, the one who brings an everlasting deliverance and unity in a world of momentary battles and division, rode into Jerusalem to die for us, for sinners and sufferers like us, so that we would be equipped with the Holy Spirit, that we would be united as a church together, and that we would ultimately worship and walk in the saving faith that we have in Jesus Christ forever. Forever. His entry on Palm Sunday is the fulfillment 
of all of these stories of momentary deliverances, of momentary victories, because in this, we get to see, in Jesus, we get to see Christ, the true king, the true king of God who is not only the pure reflection of majesty, but he is also the pure reflection of meekness. Do you see that the beauty of Jesus is that in all of his glory, in all of his wonder, in all of his goodness, he's always abounding in grace. And the same king who would come in and do far more, do everything that we could not do, continues to come to a people who succumb to cowardice, who continues to come to a people that constantly argue and bicker and and are prone to divide and brings us all to the table of fellowship where we see the reflections of his grace permeating through the lives of each other. It is Jesus alone who does that. He brings us to the table. So when the people cry out, Hosanna, save us, Lord. Hosanna, save us, Lord. We see that that is our heart's cry because we know all that he has done for us and we know that he is coming back again. But today is Palm Sunday and we get to reflect on how good Jesus is. How he is going to ride in on this donkey and he is going to bring an everlasting deliverance to his people that will ultimately end in him gathering his church together to come to the table of fellowship. So right now what I'd like to do is I'd like to join communion together. I'd like to invite the the band back up where we're going to do just that. For those of you at home, for those of you worshiping with us in Edmonds, um, if you want to grab your communion elements. Jesus' majesty and meekness and glory of who he is as our Savior is reflected in the meal that we are given by him so that we could worship him and we could never again say that we are ever alone, that we are ever hopeless, that we are ever in a battle by ourselves, but that Christ is always and forever in us. Jesus took the bread and he held it up and he said, this is my body given for you. Take this and eat in remembrance of me. Then he held up the cup and he said, this is my blood. This is my blood that is shed for you so that you would never walk alone, but you would always know that there is hope in the communion and the grace that I provide.
He said, take this and drink this in remembrance of me.